ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special episode of Land Before Time Land, uh, where we are basically going to do a DinoFax uh, segment, but for the whole episode, we thought it would be fun to do an episode that's uh, me and uh, our wonderful guest Aaron Warner from Movie Five's uh, episode, just talking about dinosaurs, isn't that right? Yeah, very excited to do this, because there was a, a lot that ended up having to get cut out of that episode for time that we went on a little bit of a tangent, you know, because of the massive uh, uh, breadth of knowledge that you you bring, Chris. I ended up uh, we ended up kind of spiraling off, and there were plenty of just weird uh, dinosaur concepts and paleo history and how they relate to the movies that we kind of were able to spin off on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's just kind of the perfect storm to get both of us in a room talking about dinosaurs because we both have such a a passion for that particular esoteric form of knowledge. Hmm. Uh, so if we if we start running off too long or if we don't know what to talk about for some reason, uh, Maddie is here as our moderator. Hello. Hi, uh, this is Madeline May. I know very little about dinosaurs <laughs> minus what you can see on Saturday morning cartoon shows. So I will be leaving it to uh, Chris and Aaron to lead this special episode. Okay, uh, so uh, you, you, had, you had kind of a prompt question that you wanted to start us off with. Is I that did. Correct? Well, I think to, to, to initially keep it on theme, I was wondering what you two thought of the the presentation of the dinosaurs in the Land Before Time series. This is funny because it kind of goes into a little bit of just like Don Bluth's design sensibilities that you can kind of see in everything he does. And, and that ends up carrying through all the Land Before Time movies because they're all based off of the art style that his studio established. And like the thing about Don Bluth is that he, is really into texture in a big way like compare it to to disney art where things are smooth and and kind of uh sanitized looking and have these very clear distinct shapes that they rely on don bluth would make just everything have these just big thick gross uh ridged lips and these knobby facial features and everything is just full of all these texture lines which I guess makes things in a way seem more alive, but it's also very grotesque when you consider like these are scaled reptiles. It's very uh, Charles R. Knight, if we're going to go into the history of paleo art. I think I discussed this a little in episode one of this podcast, but that look for the dinosaurs, particularly for Littlefoot, is very similar to the early paleo art by paleo artists like Charles R. Knight, who would give them these very um, grotesque sort of shapes not at all like the very sleek kind of agile look that we give dinosaurs today. Even big sauropods, you it's know, have, it, a, have a very slender look in the modern paleo art. It's almost like Charles Knight kind of assumed that they had a similar skin quality to like a rhinoceros or an elephant. I, I think if you look at some of the flabbiest lizards, like like an iguana, you know, you look or at like an iguana, the, or like the alligators that get posted on Flat Fucker Fridays. Yeah, it's like they've got all these weird little flaps. Of, of extra skin everywhere and they they just kind of look like they've been lazily shoved into the sock uh, <laughs> of their exterior that is what charles r knight dinosaurs look like and that is what don bluth dinosaurs look like yeah although there are all these like just expressive kind of mammalian touches like the the eyelashes and the uh just like the the lips and 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 all these weird like little features that kind of give these a sense that they're not 
scales. They feel fleshy. They feel like weirdly smooth to the touch, but but also like knobby and and ridged and and that's like and that's like a very Dom Bluth thing. If you look at just like his his character designs across the board, yeah, absolutely. And it actually kind of invites the the discussion that's always going on in paleontology, which is how accurate is our paleo art? You know, because you look at a skeleton and given enough time, you can figure out where the muscles attach and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But you can't really know if they had things like lips, if they had things like eyelids, if they had things like feathers or fur, unless you happen to get a fossil that preserves that kind of soft tissue. And so paleontologists are always wringing their hands over what did they actually look like? Did they have fat on certain parts of their body that would make parts of their body look thicker than others? Because in our paleo art, traditionally, we basically just put skin on the bones. Yeah. You know, and I've I've seen some really wacky speculative paleo art that tries to sort of break that convention and do stuff like, well, what if sauropods had a elephant trunk coming out of their head? <laughs> you know, we wouldn't know. We'd have no we'd have no way of knowing that sort of thing. Or like the more elaborate like coloration or crests or or feathering or ornamentation on the back. I think I've seen like uh, I can't remember what it was. I think that there was um, some art I saw of some kind of sauropod. I think it was a uh, uh, argent. Tineosaurus that had just this huge like dorsal crest going down the neck. Yeah, the paleo artists went really crazy with feathers as soon as that became the norm. You know, never mind that it was probably just this this very light, you know, fur-like sort of down that they had. Yeah. All the paleo artists just jumped straight to making every raptor look like a red-tailed hawk. Yeah. You know, with these elaborate lengthy flight feathers everywhere. And it's which like, doesn't oh. which doesn't exactly make sense if this thing is supposed to be like a a, a savannah hunter like a tiger that has to blend into to tall grass yeah um it's it's just kind of you you use the feathers to pretend to be more contemporary more accurate but you're really just being just as silly as as we've always been i love that i love parts where people kind of do a shit take of that like where it's the um the t-rex that's so full of of feathers and and uh extra fat and skin that it looks like this enormous round kind of like budgie or <laughs> or like this or this robin it's just this insanely big spherical bird yeah the the, the t-rex is is of course the most popular dinosaur to do reconstructions of yeah everyone loves the t-rex everyone loves to reimagine what it sounded like and you know where were the feathers did it have feathers was it too big to have feathers did it have a big feathery mane and you see you just see so many reevaluations of the t-rex for me it's it's interesting when just like when reconstructions kind of change the the posture of the animal because that changes one that leads to uh changes in how to depict the to depict like the soft tissue but it also changes kind of like the whole character of the animal aesthetically like you know when when t-rex was depicted as being this like very upright standing thing versus this kind of like low to the ground kind of horizontally standing using the tail as this giant counterbalance um posture or you know say like brachiopods like you know brachiosaurus or sauroposeidon where like the neck is very upright and erect and kind of like a giraffe versus where it kind of cranes forward yeah well it's 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 interesting how 
we take uh, so much of the early history of paleo art is just taking a dinosaur and thinking of an animal from today that it reminds you of. Yeah. And whether or not there's any relationship between those two animals, like the tail dragging thing comes from like alligators and, and lizards and things that drag their tails, even though they have a completely different posture and anatomy than a dinosaur. That's just the closest thing that we can assume. And then there's some things like a giraffe has no evolutionary relationship to a sauropod whatsoever, but the giraffe sticks its neck up in the air like that, so we're going to depict our sauropods doing the same thing. And probably um, the most interesting one to me with regard to that is the way that modern-day animals that remind us of dinosaurs inform our assumptions about dinosaur behavior. Oh, yeah raptors remind us of wolves so we envision them hunting in packs even though there's very little evidence for that or how uh ceratopsians remind us of like bison and stuff so we imagine them in vast herds across prairies of grass that didn't Mm -hmm. exist back then and and stuff like that it's uh it's fascinating yeah but what's also interesting is like kind of like things that break that molds things like myasaura or like the hadrosaurs that aren't like any animal that we would immediately make an analogy to in their in their behavior yeah i don't think anyone looks at like the anatomy of like a like a myasaura or and thinks like oh well this is going to nest in this social way like a i don't know like a duck or whatever yeah that was a pretty big discovery when when jack horner found uh what was it egg mountain where all those myasaura eggs are that was the first evidence for herding behavior in in dinosaurs they found all of these nests together in a community setting and um it was it was really groundbreaking and the hadrosaur truly does have nothing in common with any modern day animals that I mean i think it it betrays uh how how unique they are that the the term duck-billed dinosaur mm. exists because that's the only thing we could find about them to describe that's that's relatable is oh i guess they kind of had a duck-like bill but <laughs> everything else about them is just so utterly different they don't have a posture like a lizard or like any modern predator or anything yeah it's but was was funny is like that trap is something that like I know I fall into like we were looking at like your fossil collection where is this this giant cluster of ammonite shells and they're small they're like maybe you know an inch across each yeah I have and this I, little like mass mortality block of of just a ton of ammonite shells all yeah. in one little block and I don't know what would cause a bunch of ammonites of similar size to all be you know dead and clustered in that same way in the sediment but my my first assumption was something that pertains to contemporary cephalopods I was like oh what if they died pretty quickly what if the they they died pretty quickly after spawning they did like a mass spawning and then died afterwards pretty quickly and like, so like that, modern day squids yeah like squids they have these big mating shoals that they get in they they mate and lay eggs in these massive shoals and they die very rapidly and so that was what made sense to me and so i naturally assumed that but i i've got no means to know that like that for all i know that could have just been a mudslide that picked them all up those yeah. those ammonites may not have been mature at all they're small yeah it could just be that whatever the circumstances are with the currents and the topography that's where all the dead ammonites ended up you yeah know, the current carried their shells there and just dumped all the dead ammonites there <laughs> or there was some sort of a red tide event some yeah. sort of toxin in the water killed a whole bunch of them 
you never know. There, there's so many possibilities. Or maybe that's things. maybe that was the inside of a mosasaur stomach, and you know the mosasaur stomach isn't around anymore, but its contents are. Yeah, it just it just opened wide and swallowed a ton of ammonites. Yeah, it's 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 really f- funny to me that you know we'll we'll agonize over over questions like that, and then sometimes we'll find a fossil that just tells us exactly what happened. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like like the Velociraptor that's that's fighting the Protoceratops. Oh yeah, and and the raptor's got its claw right in the protoceratops gut, and the protoceratops has, I think it has its mouth like around the raptor's neck or something, <laughs> and it's like, well, I know what happened there. Yeah, it's like Mount Vesuvius <laughs> in that way. Yeah, just a perfect, perfect record of what <laughs> happened. Uh, uh, it's almost like a, a what a seventy million year old crime scene photo. Yeah, I I, I watched Jurassic Park recently because i went to the original the original i went to dinosaur ridge um i did a little social distancing road trip and i went to dinosaur ridge in colorado which is a really fascinating paleontological site it's where marsh found the first stegosaurus bones and they've actually got a little bone bed there where you can still see some bones in the original rock as they originally were and they are was this this bone wars land this was bone wars land okay yeah marsh marsh versus cope just for people listening listen to episode six Six. where yeah uh, chris tells that story because it is an amazing tale it's an amazing tale and i'm gonna make a movie of it someday hell yeah but what you see there at that site is you know a rock here with a big femur in it and then a rock 10 feet away with with a rib in it and then a little vertebra here and some little bone that somebody who knows anatomy would recognize that I don't recognize in it. And like you see what, what's happened is a dinosaur died and then it got scavenged and erosion happened and weather happened and the bones all kind of got scattered into different little places and buried all together in this horrible mismatch that would just be a nightmare to try and piece together. We found this fossil record uh, of uh, a partial skeleton of a dinosaur that had a leg for a neck. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that's Incredible. how that sort of thing used to happen. They would they would just take a bone and assume it was some other part of the animal, like when they found an iguanodon thumb spike and they thought it was, it was a, a nose horn. But and then, they thought, I, yeah. then I was in the dinosaur mood, so I went and watched Jurassic Park. And Jurassic Park, of course, opens with the scene of Dr. Grant uncovering a perfectly articulated velociraptor skeleton yeah. in a beautiful death pose just by brushing the sand off of it. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that happens once in a blue moon. And it's like amazing when it happens. It's like a miraculous find when it happens. But 99% of the time, you're just sifting through rock trying to find that stray missing bone. Yeah. It is interesting because like that is how most of us think of dig sites that like that the things are already there they're lined up perfectly like the um the skeleton on a big thunder mountain railroad like we <laughs> yeah just, with but, their ribs with their, six times the length of its body but like i guess a lot of us just don't understand like how much like interpretation and like guesswork goes into creating a finished fossil can you can you both maybe talk a little bit about that i mean yeah what's fascinating to me is like just how many dinosaur species we know of based off of like maybe six bones of the entire animal like was it sauroposeidon is just known off of like a femur yeah they they find a single bone and they just have to compare it to other bones and and say well i guess we found a giant sort of sauropod or a new type of raptor you know like i think it's archaeoraptor maybe one of the raptors that we have in the hell creek formation is known from like the tip of its nose and that's it and that's it because i mean you were showing me some of your home collection home collection fossils and like you show 
show me this is a bone fragment and this is part of a femur or this is part of a you know of this or that bone i am not able to recognize it as part of any bone because i just don't have that expertise like for me it's like that could be just petrified wood for all i know yeah, I, I'm really bad at telling petrified wood from bone personally. Yeah. So, you know, when I buy fossils, I have to I have to take their word for it. Yeah. But yeah, there are dinosaurs like um Therizinosaurus. Yeah. Where for the longest time all we had of Therizinosaurus were these giant terrifying arms like therizinosaurus has these oversized arms with immense claws on and the this end. is something and this is something we talked about uh on my episode that had to get cut because therizinosaurus is such a when a clearer picture came together of it it's so fucking weird exactly like it's the most bizarre we found thing. these we found these arms and it's like we just found some kind of horrifying giant <laughs> velociraptor monster like with these, these freddy krueger yeah. sabers on its hands and it's then, got these long claws that looks like it's going to just a spear and slash you know things six way from sunday and it's like oh we just found a super predator come to find out later when we find the whole thing it's this goofy looking herbivore that yeah. just has these big long claws so it can like pull branches closer yeah to so it can it it's got rakes for hands <laughs> yeah we thought we found edward scissor hands we found edward rake hands yeah and it's like a completely it like just it rakes wouldn't... it just it, those big long claws are our garden tools it's for raking leaves off of a tree with this weird dopey little face yeah you know, for eating plants and that's like i've seen reconstructions of therizinosaurus where it's like like it has this big bushy kind of turkey-like feathered tail yeah that you see that a lot yeah because i think like that's the way in which people kind of make sense of how goofy this animal is because yeah. <laughs> it, it you know how i don't know when like a more complete view of the animal came up like therizinosaurus is a very fascinating dinosaur to me because it's just like how many how many preconceived notions of other dinosaurs it breaks exactly you know it's, like what we, we we think we know all the major dinosaur morphologies you yeah know, it's a hadrosaur it's a ceratopsian it's a thyreophoran but you find something like Therizinosaurus and you're like, I don't I don't know what I'm looking at anymore. And it's a it's an ornithopod, isn't it? It's it is. Yeah. Yeah. But it's an or it's an herbivorous ornithopod, which is, again, like, well, actually, no, I think it's a theropod. Oh, OK. It's a theropod. Yeah. But it's an herbivorous theropod, which is very, very rare because you've got you've got your um, ornithomimids like your Gallimimus struthiomimus, which could have eaten plants. Apart from that, your theropods are almost universally predators. Yeah. But Therizinosaurus is a theropod that clearly just ate plants yeah so like how many else are there that we haven't discovered especially now that we know the sauropodomorphs uh, and the theropods are completely different groups because the saurischia has been split in twain yeah but on on the subject of bones and what we can tell from them one of one of my favorite things that's begun to happen in paleontology recently is the reevaluation of the validity of species based on stuff like maturation if I, to illustrate this for the audience i have a little sort of thought experiment if i showed you a lion standing next to a tiger you could immediately tell me which is which right because mm -hmm. the lion's got a big mane the tiger's got the stripes but if i showed you a lion's skeleton next to a tiger skeleton could you tell me which is which and whether they were even the same thing or not uh, i assume one would be slightly more robust but then that would just make one assume that one is just a larger or a more mature 
specimen of the other. Exactly. And that's the sort of thing that's going on right now is, you know, for so many decades, every time paleontologists discovered a new dinosaur, they would say, ah, I've discovered a new dinosaur and they would name it. And now you've got paleontologists like Jack Horner going around saying, well, this, um, this Dracorex was just a younger pachycephalosaurus <laughs> you know this this torosaurus is just an older triceratops and like it's all it's all come from a, a new understanding of how these things grow you know we used to assume that dinosaurs would grow like reptiles where a tiny little baby reptile morphologically is identical to an adult reptile it's just smaller but now we're finding they actually grow more like birds where they change the proportions of their skull and stuff like that as they get older kind of like mammals do I mean, there are, there are lots of reptiles that change their their proportions as they get older. Like a you know, like a, a an iguana snout elongates a lot more as it matures. That's true. Yeah. So we're finding that with dinosaurs that you you can't just assume that a little one that a younger one would look identical yeah. to an older one. You I'm just find a, a smaller animal that's very similar, and you may have found a new species, or you may have just found a younger one. Yeah. I'm imagining we get to a point where there's something just like we find something so bizarre, like Styracosaurus is just like a female Triceratops. Yeah, like that's that's just an insane like dimorphism that we that no one would have expected. For all we know, it's true. Yeah, you know, as long as they're in the same ecosystem at the same time. You know, I do find it awfully suspicious that Pachycephalosaurus, Dracorex, and Stygimoloc all exist in the exact same ecosystem. They look very similar. They're there at the exact same time. They're there at the exact same time, uh, but they happen to be on a perfect size tier with one another, where one's small, one's big, and one's right in the middle. Uh, uh, makes you think. I've decided that Parasaurolophus and Saurolophus are the same. Oh, I'm sure you're right about that. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have no no doubts about that. Parasaurolophus, more like Exactosaurolophus. Yeah. <laughs> I have no doubts about that. I have no doubts about Nanotyrannus either. I think we've pretty conclusively discovered that Nanotyrannus is just a baby T-Rex because of the teeth, you know. We found like an intermediary stage, like a teenage T-Rex because Tyrannosaurus Rex has... I've decided that Sauroposeidon is actually the juvenile Brachiosaurus and it's like the paradoxical frog where like the juvenile is larger than the adult. Oh, oh, there we go. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Tell me I'm wrong. You, You can't prove it. Uh, the one that I'm skeptical of uh, is is Taurosaurus. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about Taurosaurus just being an older Triceratops because I don't know why a, a huge animal like Triceratops would late in life suddenly undergo a reversal of the orientation of the horns and the growing of massive holes in the skull. Yeah. I, I don't know about that. Yeah, because like Taurosaurus, because like Triceratops says like the, the crest is this hard bony plate and Taurosaurus like it's it's thin it's like it's not a hard bony plate it's like the bone in the in the crest is like hollow and there's just skin covering it yeah yeah pretty much yeah that just goes to show that's the sort of thing that's happening right now in paleontology uh dear listeners is we don't actually know how many dinosaurs we've discovered we are reevaluating them all the time you mentioned earlier that a lot of dinosaurs we only knew them because of like a single bone like a femur or like part of like a nose or something yeah how do they know that that's like a different dinosaur and not just like a bone of a dinosaur they've already found? 
They don't. That's the thing. It's, okay. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing with, you know, discovering a smaller dinosaur and deciding you've discovered a new species. For decades, there was always, and still to this day kind of remains, an incentive to discover a new species, right? Mm. When you find something, if you've got an excuse to say you've discovered a new species, you're going to do it. That's that's the ego of, of scientists, which, you know, as impartial as science tries to be, everybody wants to discover something. Yeah, because then you can put, you know, your name on it or the name of something you like on it. Yeah. Now it is it is baryonyx while carrying my ass. Sometimes you do find something that looks nothing like anything else you found, or at least different enough that okay, well, this is a claw that looks like a raptor claw, but it doesn't look quite like these other raptor claws. So I guess we've found a new species of raptor? Question mark. <laughs> it's very it's very uncertain. Uh, like Arcaro Raptor, there are two raptors known from the Hell Creek Formation: Arcaro Raptor and Dakota Raptor. Arcaro Raptor might just be a baby Dakota Raptor, like a hatchling. We don't know. We just assume. I mean, and how how big is Hell Creek? Like, what what are the odds that that these two species would have you know would would be around each other? Because it seems like the smaller one would want to avoid the larger one. Yeah, the main thing is you want to avoid niche competition. No matter what you are uh, in an ecosystem, you want to avoid niche competition. If yeah. you are going to compete against anything else for the exact same food, then you're going to have a problem. Yeah, one of you is going to win and the other one is going to die out. Exactly. So you want to specialize yourself for one thing or another. You want to be a raptor that attains a different size and goes for a different size of prey mm -hmm. or something like that. Niche specialization has to happen even within the same species sometimes. Like you wouldn't want a younger T-Rex competing with an older T-Rex. So they actually niche specialize based on their ages. A younger T-Rex goes for different prey than an older T-Rex. We talked about this on our, our Yeah, the younger is more episode. of a pursuit hunter and the older is... Is, yeah, more of an um, uh, ambush predator. That's very, very important. So the, the question of the raptor would be, are these two raptors going for the same thing or not? We could be looking at a very small raptor that specialized to take on different prey, or we could just be looking at a younger version of the same exact thing. But that's that's the main incentive against something like Pachycephalosaurus and Stygimoloch existing mm. together is is niche specialization. Although Africa has no trouble with 10,000 different types of antelope. <laughs> you know, if there's enough grass for everybody, then that's not a problem. Herbivores do tend to compete a little less than uh, predators do if they if they have plentiful food. Yeah. Well, it's all one. It's like you you spend less energy hunting grass by and large. Yeah. In general. So it's you so you tend to, you know, not need yeah, you need to eat a lot of grass to sustain yourself, but if you're not burning a lot of calories chasing the grass through grass... Um, <laughs> yeah, there's actually an interesting um, thing if you look at certain African antelopes. Sexual dimorphism in the horns can tell you about the quality of food in the ecosystem. Really? Yeah. In areas that have abundant grasses and fairly wet climates... The females will lack horns, and the males will have horns only to fight with each other over mates. But 
if you look at like an oryx or some sort of uh, African antelope that lives in a very arid region where there's not a lot of plant life, the females will have horns because hmm. they have to fight with other antelope over food. Interesting. And so the function of the horns takes on uh, something entirely new. Speaking of which, this just reminded me of something. Do you do you know what the state dinosaur of uh, California is? Do you remember that offhand? We have like one dinosaur yeah. ever that we found in California. I forget what its name is. It's it's uh I I just went to the museum like before COVID and and learned about its name, but I forgot the name. It's some sort of hadrosaur from yeah. the Cretaceous and it's not even supposed to be here. It like washed here because we were underwater. Yeah, California Cretaceous. was California was like one of those shallow inland seas. Yeah. And like there was a dino a hadrosaur from someplace else that died and like ended up sinking somewhere in California and we we turned up its fossil and it's just like a fluke yeah that we found it here because I, but I that's, saw that's, that I believe is the state dinosaur of California yeah the state fossil of California is Smilodon like a lot of people in California our state dinosaur wasn't supposed to be here ended up here on accident and died <laughs> yeah. our, our state dinosaur is a transit yeah our state <laughs> our state god damn it even our state dinosaur is a transplant yeah it had a very miserable time here it, it washed up in California thinking it was going to make it big in Hollywood <laughs> Um, but the funny thing is, I saw a, I saw a. Um, yeah, I think I saw the dinosaurs improv show. The other yeah, <laughs> that di- that dinosaur made it all the way through the Second City Conservatory. <laughs> the weird thing is, I saw like a, a reconstruction, like drawing of that of that hadrosaur, whatever his name is. And it's it like has, Alamedasaurus like, or something. Yeah. it's like a California name. Yeah, and it has like this big. The reconstruction I saw had this big fatty hump on its back, like around the shoulders, like it was a, like an oryx, like a like a like a brahmin. And I was like, well, how? Who decided that? Yeah, uh, surely that wouldn't have been preserved in the marine fossil, you know, that we found. I mean, I don't know what the sediment was like here. We have a lot of like ammonites and stuff. Yeah, we have a lot of ammonites. I think I've seen some like I think I've seen some like fossil corals. Uh, n- nearby Nevada is a great spot for like. Like mosasaurs yeah. and ichthyosaurs, they find a lot of those in in Nevada because it was the Cretaceous uh, shallow sea, a lot of that area. California does not have a lot of dinosaur stuff. Um, we have a lot of Ice Age stuff. We are one of the greatest greatest places in the world to find like Pleistocene fossils. We've got the La Brea tar pits. We've yeah. got the Barstow fossil beds. We've got rich deposits of like mammoths and saber tooth tigers and dire wolves and stuff. But we do not have dinosaurs. What about the Utah like, for that? Yeah. What about like uh, Devonian, Cambrian, Precambrian? We what? do have uh, some really good uh, early Cambrian sites. Like if you've ever been to a, th- there's a Route 66 town called Amboy out in the middle of the desert, um, not far from Joshua Tree. Uh, there are some mountains there called the Marble Mountains, which have some excellent exposures of early Cambrian shale, and you can get uh, a very primitive species of trilobite there. Oh, I, wow. went, I went there and I dug some out because we were talking about some of those like some of those like early weird arthropods earlier like uh, opabinia and uh anomalocaris anomalocaris just like these bizarre pre-crustaceans that don't look anything like a modern shrimp or lobster or crab opabinia like bugs me the hell out because there's so many things morphologically about that that bear no connection to any contemporary animal yeah, it's because evolution tried something and it didn't work. Yeah. You know, evolution was experimenting. Five eyes and a, a 
claw on a trunk that wasn't the mouth but picked things up and just like elephant like passed it to the mouth yeah uh or anomalocaris with its big weird long like like feeler jaws yeah which, and- which at least are kind of similar i guess to like a spider's pedipalps I yeah think but then it has this donut hole mouth yeah so many weird things from the cambrian yeah or uh uh was it hallucinogenia the yeah yeah where what it took like 50 years of people not knowing which way was up right <laughs> side up for it yeah just like like spikes on one end and fleshy things on the other yeah it's like which way is up for just this absurd worm L- listeners i know you don't know what we're talking about but l- look up uh cambrian life uh at some point and just look at the weird assortment of of early creatures that evolution was experimenting with back in the day cambrian's before dinosaurs right cambrian is circa like 500 million years ago it's the first um geologic time period that we've sort of blocked out on our timeline where there was macroscopic life lots of macroscopic life uh things suddenly exploded from being microscopic to being uh very very large the sort of the the explosion of animals and the weird thing is they're all like arthropods for the most part they've all they've all got tough tough shells they've all got exoskeletons of some kind they all look like weird bugs you get like early like scorpion like creatures at that point only they're gigantic and they live in the water uh it's a really unique Uh, time i want to say i went to the smithsonian as a kid and they had this awesome diorama display where it was like an ocean that was just brimming with all these bizarre creatures and i think they also had like like all these different like early nautiloids and ammonites and belemnites and everything did they have any of those placoderm fish oh i think they had one they may have had a display that was like the the armored fish yeah because because in the early days of fish like the devonian and a little before uh even fish had exoskeletons yeah they had these these tough armor uh plates covering their entire body and they they look like medieval knights if they were fish Medieval knights with these terrifying plate teeth, like uh, Dunkleosteus. Yeah, was it? I think that's it. Yeah, it had just this giant—I don't know what you would describe it—this giant pointed plate for for almost like a like a parrotfish's beak, but it was terrifying looking. Yeah, they they, they look like just a single bite uh, would just sever your hand. Yeah, one of those things. So so Madeline, ask us a, a layman's question about dinosaurs so we can get back on track to something the listeners might understand. I do have a question, actually. Can you talk about the differences between the dinosaur eras? We know there's like the Jurassic and the Cretaceous. Yeah. And, but yeah. Were, were there like patterns or so, differences between like the things that were in each era? And, and so, all that? yes. My understanding is that when dinosaurs, the, the period where dinosaurs, as we define them, first emerged was the Triassic period, which is Greek for three acts. Um, <laughs> which <laughs> I yes. I don't entirely know why it's called that, but then it's uh, after Triassic is Jurassic, which is uh, you know Juris like you know law ass, and <laughs> the, then there's the the, ju- <laughs> the, the Jurassic uh, is actually named after a mountain range oh. in Europe called the Jura Mountains. Oh. And I believe Triassic is just named because they had the name Jurassic and there's three of them. And Triassic, there's three. The, the Mesozoic era, which is the era of dinosaurs, is divided neatly into three periods. And I think they Mesozoic, just called it the of Triassic because it's the third one going back. Mesozoic, of course, meaning messy animal. Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, so dinosaurs emerged during the Triassic period. Uh, the Earth was a very arid place during the Triassic. There it were a just lot of generally deserts. sucked. Yeah, a lot of lot of a lot of deserts, uh, a lot of lot of savanna kind of ecosystems except no grass. Grass didn't exist. Dinosaurs were not the dominant form of life on Earth at that no, time. No, there was like those early synapsids. Yes. So th- if you've ever seen Google on whatever device you're listening to this to, Google uh Dimetrodon. Yeah. You know, that's the most famous of the early sailbacked synapsids. Uh that sort of lizard-like creature with a big fin on its back. There were a lot of those in the Triassic, different species of them, specialized in different ways. Some were herbivores, some were predators. Dimetrodon was a predator. Those are not actually reptiles in the truest, like, modern sense of the word. Yeah, they're like pre-reptiles, but they're also pre-mammals. They're pre-mammals. The the early reptile-type animals diverged at that time into the diapsids and the synapsids, um, which back then was a very simple distinction about the skull. It was just about the number of uh, a certain type of hole in your skull called temporal fenestre that you had. And they looked very similar, but they actually ended up taking very different evolutionary paths. The synapsids, like Dimetrodon, ended up turning into mammals, ended up turning into us. The diapsids that had two holes in their skull ended up becoming the lizards and the snakes and the dinosaurs and the birds. So, Buddy, that... I need to be a bird like I need another hole in my head. <laughs> in a weird sort of way, the Dimetrodon is more closely related to us than it is to dinosaurs, which is bizarre. But uh, those types of reptiles, uh, as well as large amphibians and big salamander-like things, were still around from the Permian. Oh, yeah, and early amphibians were fucking weird, too. Like these enormous spade-shaped weird skulls. Um, the Permian period is mostly known for all those sailbacked things and giant amphibians. So th- uh, some of those kind of things were still around in the Triassic, but the uh, dinosaurs were beginning to emerge, and they they came from little lizard type creatures that learned to run on two feet. Uh, if you've ever seen like a basilisk lizard that can run on its hind legs or an Australian frilled lizard or something like that, the dinosaurs are theorized to have emerged from a lineage of lizard-like animals or that the, did that. Or the geckos from Fallout New Vegas Yeah, that run on their two hind feet and uh, <laughs> look like assholes. They are assholes. So there was a mass extinction at the end of the Triassic, and dinosaurs filled the niche left behind by all those other giant reptile-type uh, creatures. What, what were some uh, some Triassic dinosaurs that people may know about? Because I, I, I'm i blanking out on the names of some of them. Uh, I Somebody will jump on me if I'm wrong about this, but I think uh, Coelophysis was a Triassic Yeah, dinosaur. that sounds familiar. Uh, maybe Platyosaurus. Like that sounds familiar. Very early, very simple, long, lanky, slender kind of dinosaurs. Yeah. I'm not actually sure that, that Dimetrodon and its ilk were still around by the Triassic now that I think about it. They're mainly known from the Permian, but things like that I think were still around by the Triassic. There was a mass extinction at the end of the Triassic, and dinosaurs took over. And at that time is when dinosaurs attained the gigantic size that they are known for. The largest dinosaurs, the largest land animals of all time lived during the Jurassic period. That's when you had the sauropods, Mm -hmm. which is the long necks, which are the largest land animals of all time. You had the stegosaurs and you had the first um, really big carnivorous theropods like Allosaurus. Uh, the Morrison Formation ecosystem that we have uh, fossils of here in North America is the most famous ecosystem from the Jurassic. It preserves Apatosaurus, Diplodocus, 
Brachiosaurus, Camarasaurus, all of which are sauropods. And the interesting thing about the Jurassic period is, think of how many sauropods I just listed. You know, Mm -hmm. four of those animals I just listed were long necks, and they all lived in the exact same ecosystem at the exact same time. That's, uh fucked up that's fucked up it's crazy but 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 (laughs) what's also interesting is that they i mean like brachiosaurus versus diplodocus like my understanding is that one they have these wildly different body postures so a brachiosaur is going to eat different vegetation than a diplodocus just because a diplodocus keeps its head way closer to the ground than a brachiosaurus that's that's what we can assume you know we have to assume that you have one of these things munching from the canopy one munching from the understory one munching from the forest floor and they're they're just or they're eating different types of trees and they're just not not getting it getting in each other's way because these sauropods they could mow down entire forests which one ate tree stars though Oh, uh, Littlefoot's an Apatosaurus. Yeah. So this this era, I, I talked about in one of our episodes, um, the fourth one, I think, with Tony Goldmark, I talked about the relationship between dinosaurs and flowers. Go listen to that. Um, about how flowering plants evolved uh, and allowed dinosaurs to shrink because dinosaurs used to eat gymnosperms, which don't have a lot of nutritional content. You had to eat a lot of them, digest them for a long time. You had to have a big stomach. You had to be huge. But like to eat, pine cones. Like pine cones. But to eat flowering plants, which emerged later on in the late Jurassic, uh, you could eat suddenly much fewer of them. And so when we see flowering plants emerge, we see the dinosaurs get smaller. So in the Cretaceous period, you still have some huge dinosaurs around. Uh, but in general... They all get a lot smaller. The Cretaceous is known for there were fewer sauropods around, uh, especially in North America. There were some huge sauropods that lived in South America. South America was kind of what's, a hotspot for sauropods. What's for some there? Reason. Argentinosaurus. Argentinosaurus. Supersaurus. I think. Some, it's some funny of those to me, like really how many, ones. how many of these Titanosaurus they're called. Yeah, it's so. Many, it's funny to me how many of these uh, these sauropods that are only known by like maybe one or two giant bones just have. A name where it's like well uh they they get these these genus or species names just that mean big lizard but with a different word for big exactly gigantosaurus yeah. ultrasaurus supersaurus Egg precisely because we we run i mean soro poseidon is at least like creative because it's like uh this is a uh, uh poseidon's lizard because it was <laughs> it, because poseidon was the god of earthquakes earthquakes and, th- and th- thunderous uh movements of the earth yeah Yeah. and so that makes sense for this but just like we just run out of words to describe this is the biggest lizard that we found oh god there's a bigger one yeah yeah. so like you get well does ultra mean bigger than super yeah so in the cretaceous uh in north america basically you didn't have a lot of sauropods left your um, stegosaurs had long since evolved into ankylosaurs, which are the ones that look like a tank that have the thick armor yeah, covering those, their entire those, body. Yeah, uh, those, I don't know what you would call them, the, those sails or those like heat venting plates on the back. So on the back of a stegosaur turns into an armored plate on the back of an ankylosaur. Yeah, and you have a lot more grazing animals now because you don't have grass yet, but you have a lot more smaller plants covering the ground. And so you have dinosaurs like like ceratopsians uh, and hadrosaurs in large numbers, which are grazing on the plants. 
the carnivores have mostly gotten smaller. You've got raptors now. You've got small, agile carnivores. You have a few hangers-on. T-Rex is actually kind of this weird exception. Like, most of the big, giant carnosaurs are gone by the Cretaceous, but T-Rex is still going strong because there's none of the others around. And yeah. It's got a little empty niche it can feel it, like. I can I it, can have a... It's easy to be the, the king of, like, those uh, theropod predators if you're the only one that hasn't downsized. Exactly, yeah. Although there were there were bigger theropod predators than T-Rex, weren't there? Yes. Uh, most of them lived in the Jurassic period, yeah. but uh, there were there were some around in the Cretaceous in other parts of the world. But in North America, in the Hell Creek ecosystem that preserves the North America at the very end of the dinosaurs, T-Rex is the only game in town for wow. giant predators. There was nobody else that was remotely like that in that ecosystem, which suggests that an ecosystem could only support, you know, one or two of those types of things. Even in the Morrison ecosystem, with its tons of sauropods, we've only got a handful of large predators. We've got Allosaurus. Mm -hmm. We, and we've got Ceratosaurus, which are probably eating different things anyways, you know. So... Where was Dilophosaurus? Dilophosaurus is an early Jurassic dinosaur. Okay. It's, and it it's was... one of the sort of ancestors of, of the carnosaurs. Okay. Um, North America. Okay. Uh, from what they would have called the Kayenta Formation. You can see tracks of what was probably a Dilophosaurus if you head to southern Utah. There are a number of places in southern Utah. The Warner Valley Dinosaur Tracks, the St. George Dinosaur Tracks. There's a few in um, the Subway Canyon of Zion National Park. Oh. There are a lot of trackways in that area from theropods at the time that we, we have no way of identifying, but the, the time period and the size makes sense for being uh, Dilophosaurus. Okay. And uh, what was it? A pursuit hunter? Was it a scavenger? Or what? Probably a pursuit hunter. Okay. Dilophosaurus was of all the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. It's it's the the one that's been the most butchered. Oh yeah, <laughs> it, it gives this Australian uh, lizard frill. It's got this and Australian the, lizard and frill. And the spitting spitting venom, which is like a cobra, which is Michael Crichton's goofy idea from the novel. Uh, Michael Crichton did that idea in the novel just to illustrate that we don't know that they didn't do stuff like that. Yeah. But still, you know, now everybody thinks that it spat poison and there's zero evidence for that also they made them these small raptor things when what were they like 20 feet tall they were not as big as t-rex but they were big they would have been like 20 feet long they were big enormous uh long lanky creatures they had long necks and long tails but because they were crocodile kind of snouts yeah but because they had these like long lanky bodies and crocodile snouts and the two that's another thing like like the way in which like people in the popular imagination they kind of like give like these character niches to dinosaurs like dilophosaurus has you know this weird crocodile snout and these two crests on its head so it's a it it goes in the weird category and because it's in the weird category that means it's smaller because it's not in the big strong category like a T-Rex where the T-Rex right. has to look kind of like more normal and basic because what makes it what it is is that it's big and strong even though encountering a dilophosaurus in person you would be just about the perfect size to be its prey yeah you know it would be more interested in eating you than than a t-rex would yeah you know my favorite dinosaur is actually cryolophosaurus which is uh very similar to dilophosaurus it's a relative of it that looks similar except oh, it only it's has got, one crest it's got one crest and it's kind of this weird swooping pompadour yeah type of thing and uh, it's found in the early Jurassic of 
Antarctica. <laughs> it's one of the only dinosaur fossils from Antarctica. Antarctica was was further north back then. Yeah, it was tropical. And it was tropical. So I love Dilophosaurus and Crylophosaurus. Those are those are so cool to me. That that just they they look so elegant yet primitive because yeah. all the subsequent predators kind of got stockier compared to them, and you never really had anything that quite looked like them after that. Yeah, Carnotaurus. When was when was that around? Carnotaurus, I think, is from the Cretaceous. I could be wrong, but I think it's the Cretaceous of South America. It was a South American uh, dinosaur, and Carnotaurus is one of the weirdest dinosaurs, you know, in terms of the big theropods, because it's got those. You know, if you think T. Rex had uh, reduced arms carnotaurus has almost just like tiny little vestigial hands popping out of its chest you know completely useless for anything it's got that flat stumpy face it's got those weird like ridges all over its back and it's got those horns yeah carnotaurus is very very unique and is is a beloved dinosaur for that reason um, I remember waiting so many years for them to finally put Carnotaurus in a Jurassic Park movie. Uh, and they finally did. Oh, didn't they get a uh, uh, chameleon-like uh, color changing in one of the Crichton books? In the second Crichton book, yeah, they yeah. had a chameleon-like power, which they later gave to the Indominus Rex in the movies. Um, Carnotaurus is, is, it's, is kind of an interesting case for talking about how the public perception of dinosaurs uh, subconsciously gets proliferated. Carnotaurus was first depicted on screen in the movie Dinosaur. Dis- oh, the Disney's, Disney's CGI Disney's dinosaur. one? Now, Disney's Dinosaur was, was made in collaboration with Disney Imagineers. Anybody who knows anything else I do knows that I'm an obsessive theme park guy. I also do that show, Remain Seated, with Chris Nebergall. So this is, this is my wheelhouse. Disney's Imagineers created a ride at Disney's Animal Kingdom based on dinosaurs and they wanted to have a dinosaur in it that wasn't T-Rex that could fill that T-Rex niche so they used Carnotaurus and they had to make Carnotaurus uh, they had to bulk it up a little bit in order to fit the mechanical components of the animatronics in it Uh. And they needed a color that could be seen easily in the dark because the the attraction was was sort of set at night and they didn't want it to blend into the browns and, you know, greens of the forest. So they painted it bright red. <laughs> so you've got this bright red kind of bulky Carnotaurus animatronic. And then to make the movie tie in with the attraction, they were making the movie at the same time. They made the movie Carnotauruses look exactly like they do in the ride. So fast forward to now and almost every depiction of Carnotaurus in a movie, in a model, a collectible, an action figure is bright red and kind of stocky. The Jurassic Park Carnotaurus from Fallen Kingdom looks like the one from Dinosaur. Oh my God. Uh, Toys of it always look like the one from Dinosaur. And these are are just decisions that were made by Imagineer Joe Rohde and his team to accommodate the needs of an attraction, but now it's just the public imagination of what a Carnotaurus looks like. That is easily the longest lasting legacy of the dinosaur movie that <laughs> yeah. is one yeah. of the most forgettable awful films i've ever seen well look yes. we all well a it, rip off of land before time yeah yeah all things maybe we'll talk about it on this podcast someday i mean look we all know iguanodons could talk and had uh friends who were gibbons <laughs> lemurs lemurs, lemurs whatever the fuck which did not exist at the time did they uh no yeah <laughs> no well, they were on that island. That's why we haven't, <laughs> yeah. we haven't found it yet. <laughs> they were uh, moving it, moving it on Madagascar. I love, um, I love how that movie is 
That movie is kind of doing Lemuria theory <laughs> a little bit by having an What's island with lemurs on it. What's Lemuria theory? It's one of my favorite things. Okay, so conspiracy theorists love talking about Lemuria, which is this like imaginary like Atlantis-like continent that used to exist in the Indian Ocean. Lemuria came about because before continental drift theory was discovered, before we knew about plate tectonics, if we found animal fossils in two different parts of the world, we had to assume there had been some kind of ancient land bridge connecting them, or else how oh, would they have gotten there? Right. There are lemurs in Madagascar and there are lemur fossils in India. Lemuria, literally Lemuria, was the imagined land bridge that people thought used to connect Madagascar and India before they learned about continental drift. And as soon as continental drift was discovered, the whole theory of Lemuria goes out the window. But conspiracy theorists still like to believe in Lemuria. It's like another Atlantis to them. So that's that's where Lemuria comes from, is is the kooky science of, of the old days. And it's, it's based off land bridges, which people mm. so so there weren't any so so then land bridges the Bering land bridge was real the land bridge that used to connect Russia and Alaska is an actual thing it's just that the um, the sea level has risen to cover it up okay. but that is why North and South America have so many of the same mammal species as Asia uh, and Africa because yeah, cause I, all, I remember learning about yeah. like some kind of land bridge or something but, in but as we all know there's no such thing as an island because are it's we all, are we bringing this? Yeah, it's back all peninsulas. <laughs> it's all peninsulas. <laughs> it's all peninsulas all the way down. <laughs> yeah, Atlantis isn't real. Lemuria isn't real. You know what is a continent? New Zealand. New Zealand is a continent. It's not connected to Australia. Wait, how? Wait, it has its own plate. It has its own tectonic uh, plate, and it has its own continental landmass underwater. It's just the sea level is covering all of New Zealand except for the very tops of the mountains which is new zealand itself so i'm right and so continents and <laughs> islands con all islands are continents all con <laughs> all islands are peninsulas uh we are all one i think we should yeah there's more than seven continents and we need to teach <laughs> no no, 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 no. there's there's one continent the, hu <laughs> the human continent Ooh, that's gonna be the next uh dow commercial yeah <laughs> We are all connected. Yeah. <laughs> islands are fake. Yeah. If you can stretch your neck far enough and like, you know, and walk on the ocean floor, everything is just all part of the same continent. Like oh, the ocean, be... the ocean is just a lake. The ocean is just a saltwater lake on the one global continent. How fucking terrifying would that be? If all of a sudden you're on like a boat in the middle of the ocean, all of a sudden like a neck of a creature just comes out and it's very clear that it's like standing on something that it's not like swimming in the water. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't that in like the five Chinese brothers there was the one that could stretch his neck out to to walk on the ocean floor while still breathing above it? No, that's or... one piece with uh, Luffy the rubber man. There we go. Yeah, okay. What dinosaur that that we haven't seen yet in the Land Before Time movies would you like to see and why? Oh, um I would I would love to see if the movies ever got around to a Therizinosaurus because, you know, it's a like the the way in which the design sensibilities of these movies do is that they are very specific about what what species every dinosaur is, but also like in their backstory or in their lore, but in their actual design, they're all everything is kind of genericized or or cartoonified in just these kind of slapdash random ways. But Therizinosaurus it's so goddamn weird that it would be a challenge for the character designers to kind of incorporate it into into like the the art style they've been working with and i i, I would be interested to see what the what the result of that 
tension would be. I definitely noticed that in the newer films, whenever they add a new dinosaur, in the later films, it starts to get looking a little bit more like modern paleo art. And the really? characters start to look a little bit less like our, our previous characters. Interesting. So in light of that, I would like to see a much more accurate depiction of, of certain sauropods. We haven't come to the great long neck migration yet, but I'd like to see, you know, Littlefoot meet uh, some species of sauropod, maybe a brachiosaur that he hasn't met before and have it reflect a more modern uh, look at a brachiosaur than, you know, our very goofy yeah. Charles R. Knight uh, Brontosaurus <laughs> that or Littlefoot like those, is. Or like those sauropod depictions where they have these just bizarre, colorful, like, crests and frills oh, on the you neck. Know what? Amergosaurus. There we go. That's what I want to see. Yeah. That's, I, that's mine. Amergosaurus. So, yeah, um, I think that's a good place to wrap this conversation up for like the last part of this of this episode um what are some things you want to like have our audience understand about dinosaurs like imagining like our dino our, our audience only knows dinosaurs through like land before time movies and, and things like that what what's like the ultimate takeaway from what we've been talking about today i think the big thing is that dinosaurs are fucking weird and that um, in looking at evolution, you know, we can't assume because we live in a period where there are common themes and similarities across animals that don't map 100% back to animals from hundreds of millions of years ago. And they tell us a lot about like how life changes and adapts and can take very bizarrely different forms uh, in, in response to a changing environment. I think on that note, I've always thought the reason dinosaurs are interesting to people is not the most interesting thing about dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are interesting to people because some of them, and I mean just some of them, really a few in the statistical you know scope of things were enormous and people are captivated by enormous things but what's really the most interesting thing about dinosaurs to me is that they evolved into birds mm. which are these creatures that are morphologically so unlike them that it took us more than a century to figure it out yeah you know uh and and when we figured it out it was so obvious and that just changes the whole game you know that just shows you how radically different forms can be with given just less than 100 million years of evolution. And that is the most fascinating legacy of dinosaurs to me, more so than the fact that they were pretty big, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for um, uh, taking time to talk about uh, something that I find incredibly interesting, but do not understand whatsoever. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us again uh, today. And listeners at home, check out Fuckboy Book Club if you haven't already. It's a hilarious podcast. Anything else you want to plug while you're here? Uh, just Fuckboy Book Club is spelled F-U-C-Q-B-O-I. Right, I didn't make that mistake. <laughs> so that was the it's, correct uh, we, we, we didn't want to spell it with an actual cuss word and we wanted it to be unique enough that people would find us and not, you know, have it fall into the background of everyone else complaining about, you know, um, bad uh, Tinder DMs. And now we made something <laughs> that's uh, impossible to spell. Awesome. Well, again, thank you uh, both so much. Um, if you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to tune in next week when we will be releasing our whatever episode. Mm. I'm not sure what number we're going to be by the time this comes out, but 
Uh, yeah, and if you like this kind of content, let us know in the comments. You can let us know on Twitter at LBTL Podcast. You can let us know on Facebook, Land Before Timeland. And you can email us questions and comments or just say hi at Land Before Timeland at gmail.com. Thank you guys again both so much. And uh, listeners, have a Jurassic Day. Have a Cretaceous Day. Have a law-ass day. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.